Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. Just going to do the quick reminder that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes are free. The app is free. Uh, almost 500 episodes, all free. So if you're a regular listener of the program, if you get something out of it, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to show your support, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you very much. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. So, hey, everybody. Right. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. And uh, I am very pleased to have Carl Geary on the program. He's got a novel out called, uh, called Montpelier Parade, and it is uh, available in the United States from Catapult. It got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It was also a boxed review. So Publishers Weekly does this, where you know if you get a starred review in these trade uh, review publications, that's obviously good. You get a starred review in Kirkus. You get a starred review in Publishers Weekly. But when you get a starred and boxed review, that's like doubly spectacular. So Montpelier Parade in Publishers Weekly, was starred and boxed. These are the designations. And uh, it's really gotten some great press, and I uh, was very pleased to get a chance to talk with Carl. He came over, uh, he's doing a U.S. book tour, and flew, I want to say he took a train from uh, Glasgow, where he lives, to London, and then caught a flight to Los Angeles, and then landed like after midnight, and then slept for a couple hours, and then came over here, sat down with me, had some coffee and we talked and he, he was delightful. He's had a very interesting life. He has uh, worked as an actor. He owns a bar. He came over to the United States from Dublin when he was just 16 years old. He's written a movie. He starred in movies. You know what I'm saying? Like he's done all this different stuff. He's had a varied creative life. And now he has written a very well-received novel called, uh, called Montpelier Parade. We talk about all of it. Uh, and I figure we should just get to that. Should we not just get to that? This is my conversation with Carl Geary. Um, but most of this book actually was written between New York upstate, uh, Woodstock, and then I used to take trains up to Montreal to finish. So Why, what was in Montreal? I couldn't speak French. And 
I needed to submerge myself in such a way and I couldn't quite do it when I understood everyone around me. And so by traveling up north like that, I I suddenly was entirely isolated and I needed that sense of isolation to get to where I needed to get with the main character, Sonny. Yeah. Yeah, it was really effective. It does turn you inward. It does. To be in a place where there's a language barrier. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And it's it's um it's a bizarre thing because you have to have kind of a stomach for loneliness uh, for certain characters. I have that. I really enjoy <laughs> it. I think it's almost like picking a scab. I, I enjoy it yeah. and it makes sense, but it's a nice place to work from. Well, you know, it's funny because I was, uh, I, you know, I started working a day job not too terribly long ago and, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in an office all day and I'm interacting with people. I like people. Yeah. Same as that. I'm you know, it's not like I hate people, <laughs> but you know, after, uh, as a writer and as somebody who has worked solo for a long time to suddenly be, you know, eight, 10 hours a day interacting, social, having to be on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a, there's a certain switch that has to get, or otherwise your colleagues start to void and yet there's a water yeah. tower always, right? I don't want yeah. people to think I'm weird, but no, I, I find myself like getting up super early yeah. just so I can have some time to just like hang out by myself. I'm yeah. like, I'm like, do I have a problem? But I guess that's just how I'm wired. How a lot of people who are bookish are wired. I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think there's a real quality to that. And it's funny where we have an environment, a society in some ways that suggests that it is odd. And I, I think there's a strong case to be made for the opposite of that. I think some kind of alone people who are comfortable in their own skin are much better equipped to deal with the world in a different way and see it. Um, whereas the the reverse of that is you're just kind of rolling all the time. You're kind of an autopilot. Yeah. I think a little pause, a daily pause. And yet I do marvel at people who literally never tire of being social, like love having lots of people around. They want like house guests constantly. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, holy, I, you know, and it's amazing to me that they just, they don't, they don't wear out, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so there's a part of me that envies it. But you said you're from Dublin originally, so let's start there. Like, you were raised from what birth till you... Yeah, I was born in Dublin. I lived there until I was 16. Um, and then at 16, you know, this is 80s Dublin, show my age. Uh, and the terrain was fairly bleak, Um and I think most of us at that stage, we kind of grew up with an eye already towards other places we could be. And um, it was a very common thing. And it was, it was an expression at the time, which was, you know, last one out, turn out the lights. Do you know that Ireland would just be in complete darkness because everyone would have to split? What, what, what was what was going on in Dublin at the time that made it so bleak? Well, in terms, I'll, I'll give you an example. There were people with third level degrees, university degrees, who were flipping burgers. Um, the interest rates were in the twenties, high twenties. Um, the economy was just in a tank. It was it was the Thatcher time. It was hunger strikes. There was uh, the the miner strikes in in UK, and it was just generally <laughs> it, it was kind of a bleak atmosphere, do you know? Um, and you would hear stories from immigrants who had been in other places, and they just seemed gloriously romantic. Sure, or they did at least to me. But I think part of why I wanted to get out is because I wanted to. I knew there were other universes out there and I just wanted to just see one yeah. just to see, is there another way? Is there different lives? And it's not because my life personally was so dreadful, 
But I certainly felt like this this kind of real hunger to know other things. So what, what did your what were your folks doing? Um, it was, they, you know, I, I'm looking my folks, you know, I grew up in a large family. Uh, my mother was a traditional, you know, housewife, uh, which is all I knew as a possibility even that's, you know, at that time in Ireland. And my father uh, was working, doing his thing, you know. Um, what did he do? He was a builder. He was oh. a builder, he was a, a bricklayer, um, quite a good one too, actually. But um, I just, I think, yeah, I just had that hunger to kind of get out and explore the world a bit. How many siblings did you have? I had eight. So big Irish Catholic family. Big Irish Catholic family. I was the youngest of them. And I think that's another thing is, you know, I think when you're the youngest, you become sort of a an observer. You know, you kind of become witness to the family, um, which I like, actually. I'm, I'm, it's, it's not a role I dislike. Um, but you certainly tend to watch in this kind of almost hyper-vigilant way to kind of see, well, that's how that person is. That's what, how they're living. You've got a lot of precedent to work with. Yeah, you do. And you've you got really to get do. you to learn from everybody's successes and mistakes. And yeah. Yeah. You have an, not an advantage, but you, you know, and, and my, my own family are very generous with their, what they know and would talk about that stuff. And, you know, maybe you want to try this and that. And so even though it seems preposterous in some ways to leave your, your country of origin at 16, and it was, the other alternative seems, to me at least, more ridiculous. So you talked about um, having a sense of other universes out there and wanting to go experience one. I'm imagining that your uh, elder siblings were a source of information for you, but were you getting it also from books and movies yeah, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, there was a couple of, I mean, you know, the, uh, there was a small art house theatre in Dublin at the time, the Odeon, uh, along the quays in Dublin off the Liffey. And... Uh, I would go along and they would have these, these double builds and you could go and just lose yourself in there for hours. It was great. Yeah. It was great. And I hadn't done uh, terribly well in school. I, I was dyslexic and it was undiagnosed. And uh, I think it, it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't add up. And actually, it wasn't until I got to New York. Uh, I was lucky. Most Irish at that time were heading out to Boston. And if they were going to New York, it was the Bronx. It was Queens. Very traditional Irish areas at the time. And I landed into the East Village almost by accident. So what happened? Well, what happened was I uh, had a friend whose sister knew a guy. This is how far removed. I'd never met him. His name or his nickname, at least, was Johnny One-Eye. Uh, <laughs> John Sinclair is his name. A terrific guy. And I had his number and I called him. Johnny One-Eye. I called Johnny One-Eye from Dublin, 16 years old. And I said, hey, Johnny One-Eye, <laughs> <laughs> I want to come to New York. And he was nuts, but he was nuts enough to go, yeah, yeah, sure. You want to come over? Yeah, yeah. You know, he did that whole thing. And he was the most glamorous sounding thing I'd ever heard in my life. But he had a bicycle messenger company and he just happened to need someone. And that was back when you had bicycle messengers, you know, you'd a beeper, a bag and a, uh, a bicycle that would be stolen every two weeks. Sure. Um, and he said, yeah, come on out. And so I showed up, I think about three weeks later at immigration. I had a student passport that expired in about six I think it was a six-month passport. And the immigration officer looked at me, and I think I was so absurdly young-looking, like I was 16 going on 12, yeah. that he went, yeah, of course this guy's not staying. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> he let me through. And I, I don't think I went back to Dublin for seven or eight years. Um, 
and you know I, until I sorted myself out and got my, got myself right. But uh, yeah, I worked as a bicycle messenger for a couple. Of, it was a great entry, kind of a great and terrifying entry into New York City. Well, I was going to say it's a great way to learn a place. Is I mean, to be on a bicycle, but yeah. it's also you know you're risking your life every. You're time. risking your. I mean, it's treacherous work. But I, I, I've come away now with this almost encyclopedic knowledge of New York City. It's it's great. Yeah, like you know? every alley, every Everything. shortcut. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. And then what would happen was we'd all hang out afterwards in Washington Square Park and all these guys would sit around and none of them had names. It was like Spider and Johnny, you know, Joey No Mates and da, 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 you know, and all these guys. And, you know, you'd sit around drinking 40 ounces of Old English 800 and it just seemed like, oh, my God, I've arrived. But the one thing that was terrific about the East Village at that time was your rent was about $200 a month. And what year is this? This is 88. Okay. And it meant that anybody, well, first off, you had a great kind of mix of people who didn't quite fit in anywhere else. And they all showed up here. And what was terrific was it, it, it was, you know, it meant that people could figure themselves out, they could nurture themselves in a way that's unthinkable now. And it's all down to the economy of that local neighborhood. You know, if you're paying, what now, three, $4,000 a month, you've got to get up and work in the morning. Yeah. We had time. And the value I now place on time is phenomenal. Do you know, I just realized now the way the world is, seems to be endlessly gentrified. We, we're, I don't know where our artists are going to come from. Yeah, it's I not know. Los Angeles. It's not New York. It's not Brooklyn. Well, I was reading uh, an interview that you did, and I think you were quoting uh, something Patti Smith said, which I've heard more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like she's giving a talk in Brooklyn or somewhere. That's right. And a young person said, uh, "You know, what, what, what do you? What is your advice to someone who's a young aspiring artist in New York?" And, and what yeah. did she say? Well, she didn't break stride. She just went leave. And that's heartbreaking because New York has been this terrific hub of creativity. That's what it does. Yeah. You know, and there was a deal. We had a deal. It's like it's like the deal with the pigeons. You know, you they don't get in the car's way, and we just drive. But the deal in New York seemed to me, at least, was the Wall Street guys all went over there and they did their thing and that was fine. And we in the east side did our thing and they, we left each other alone. And it feels to me now, at least, that that deal no longer exists. And if you're a young artist, it's impossible now to have the time that we had to just figure out is it visual? Is it, do I want to write? Do I want to, you know, all of these possibilities. You know, kids get out of college now and they owe a ton of money. They have to start working immediately. There's no time for what we spoke about earlier. That just to sit and go, what am I interested in? Yeah. What, how am I affected by the world? What matters to me? That conversation can't happen anymore because your landlord's coming at the end of the month and then the month after that. And it's, it's this kind of relentless thing. I really feel... You know, I feel like a lot of young people, they've got a rough deal. Well, they've got to, or they've got to find, they've got to go make their own place. Like I Correct. was reading about people because the Bay Area has become so cost yeah. prohibitive. Young people are moving to Sacramento. So you just, and I've, yeah. heard, I've heard the same thing about Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like yeah. places that before you would never have associated yeah. with young yeah. hip. Apparently there's remarkable things happening out in Detroit. Some yeah. of the neighborhoods there, same thing. So, you I mean, know. hopefully people are going to find a way, but it seems like the only option. You're not going to be able to retrofit. Unless there's some massive 
um, structural change or some co- like economic collapse or yeah, you're not going to be able to retrofit Manhattan no to accommodate artists. It seems like it's lost. At it, least. it is, and actually, it's funny too because I think you have to be careful that you, one becomes very romantic and sentimental about a time. And you have to let these things go and do exactly as you said. And you've got to go and discover new places to, to fit you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just, but it's, it's hard not to, to feel heartbroken about the loss. It's a big loss. Because, you know, you go to Manhattan even today with all of, you know, uh, all of the complaints one might have about the way that it has been sort of turned into, uh, you know, like a shopping mall or you hear all yeah. the common criticisms. Sure. It's still an amazing place. It's a great city. And you, it, you yeah, want it's to be, yeah. it's the kind of place that as a, as a creative person, you're like, wow, this is an inspiring spot. Yeah. There's so much history here. Yeah. I would love to just be uh, in the mix here and be able to experience this every day. And yet how, how do you do it and pay your rent? Like you were saying, yeah. uh, it's just, yeah. it seems yeah. like it's impossible. It's also interesting too, because I know I, I still have a, a very interesting relationship with that city, but I, I do feel like a lot of what I do there now is around memories and memories are a very bizarre thing in that. And I'm really fascinated by this, how one, brings their own history to a place, do you know? And so the filter between what you're seeing and what is actually there is not entirely honest, which is fine. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that my New York, the New York I experience when I think of New York, and even when I walk around certain blocks, I have a history with that stoop, oh, right. or that corner or over there. And so I carry all of this stuff with me. And then you think of the likes of 8 million people all carrying that same narrative with them. Entirely different narratives. Yeah, yeah, isn't, yeah. It, isn't it remarkable? Of course, yeah. I mean, especially for a bike messenger. Yeah. Did you ever see that show High Maintenance? No, I didn't. You should see it. Oh, really? It's about a weed delivery guy who rides around New York on his bike. I bet you it would make you in some weird way nostalgic. I bet it would. It's there a was, terrific show, too. There was a guy, actually, in the early 90s, called himself the Pope, and he took an ad out in the Village Voice. He didn't last long, but he took an ad out and was selling pot that, that he would... Uh, he would deliver a pot, and he got made a fortune for a couple of weeks. And then the cops were like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> we're not there yet." But sometimes, see, I, I kind of like his strategy because sometimes the more brazen you are, the more yeah. in plain sight. Who like knows? Nobody, nobody takes it seriously, or they're yeah. not, that's not where they're looking. That's right. But it sounds like the cops were on this one. He gave him a couple of weeks. The they, Pope, they it the Pope. <laughs> I love that. The Pope. Hey, everybody! If you are a writer, or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, so okay, so did you? You didn't? Did you go to school when you were in New York? No, you had no university. But I, I almost uh, would argue that how could you possibly top living in the East Village from the age of sixteen through the age of twenty-two or whatever? Uh, in terms of education, that seems like a great education in and of itself to be on your own there. It's a type of education. I mean, I, I don't think it's for everybody, um, but it's funny. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I certainly in the last year since the novel has come out, I've spent a lot of time with people with, uh, you know, a lot of degrees. And I think there's a there's a commonality between us, um, which is that, you know, academia is something that happens after the fact. So you write a story and it comes from a different place. That's not where a story comes from. I mean, with fiction anyway, with prose. And afterwards, obviously, you have to put that uh, sort of an academic shape on it, um, which is important. Um, And so where one of us carry one bag, the other one carries another bag of tools. And really, I think we all kind of struggle towards the same thing. And the the journey you make to get there is, it's almost irrelevant, you know, in terms of, you know, making a case for or against that. So, like, when you're a a young person, a bike messenger, uh, are are you, when do you start to harbor artistic ambitions? That's a great question. Um, I read... Because, again, if you go back to that kind of environment that I was in, every conversation ended with somebody going, oh, have you read dot, 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 you know, and you would go and you'd seek this stuff out because you knew next time you went back, you had to have something to say about it. And it was a type of university in that regard, but it was it was very organic and it, it allowed you to kind of maneuver. You'd, if you head it one way, if like for a while I headed off in the way you do as a teenager down the beatnik track. I was going to say, yeah. what were some of the books like that? That was a but those guys of- were around. Yeah, like you would see, you know, um, um, Ginsburg sitting in a coffee shop. I mean, these guys were around the neighborhood. You saw him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, he, you know, and the people like that. And your man, Dewey, who was the guy who kind of influenced all those guys. And and guys like that around, you'd see Lou Reed around. And there was no kind of firewall. And people didn't bother these guys, but they'd respect for them, you know. Um, and if you were worth your salt, you knew about who they were and what they were about and the kind of work that they were doing and the kind of, kind of groundbreaking they had done at that period. Um, so... You know, what started to happen, at least for me, was, you know, there's this relationship that I love between an author, between a a work, the writer and the reader. It's like you meet in the center place somewhere and it's entirely intimate uh, and private. And there's something in that private um, environment that is similar as a reader as it is to a writer. Do you know? So there's, there's all, there was already something that was starting to kind of build. And I'd tried, I'd made attempts at writing kind of, you know. That early? Well, that early. And I wrote, a, I wrote my first novel when I was 22. What was it called? Uh, it was called The Digger. 
Um, and it was appalling, um, earnest. You know, it was kind of what you might expect. Yeah, it certainly wasn't Keats. Um, but I, I, uh, it, it served as a terrific apprenticeship to kind of know your journey through a book and what that involves. Just to get through, just get, to get through the process. Yeah. Just from A to B, you know, to understand something about structure and to understand something about themes and plot and just a basic characterization, like real nuts and bolts stuff. Um, and so even though I went on, and I did a lot of other stuff, I would always identify pr- privately as a writer, as a prose writer. And I continued to work throughout. And I started, a, you know, a number of books since that, that you just felt like, Okay, I'm delighted I, I went this journey, but we've gotten to a dead end. Because, you know, it happens. You, you start into something, and you think, you get very excited, and you think, this, this, this is something, and it evaporates. So how do you know? This is always an interesting question, because I've had that experience. And I guess you sort of just intuit it, but there's always something of a struggle with regard to uh, answering the question, like, am I quitting on this? Or is, well, it, or is yeah. it really right to drop it? Yeah, I think that's a... I mean, it's, it, it is entirely the individual's uh, intuition, I suppose, but you have to trust that voice. I think for me, at least, what what, what was different, certainly with Montpellier Parade, was that it wasn't always a struggle. It's like any relationship, you know, particularly in the beginning. It should be fun, at least 40% of the time. If you're always fighting... <laughs> the 40% rule. You yeah, heard it here first. you know what I mean? Yeah, this is, you know, and also it comes after you. You know, you do like the, the, I show up at the desk every morning anyway. But then what happens is at different times throughout the day, it kind of taps you on the shoulder and goes, hey, what about this? Or did you think, you know, these these things start to come to you. And it's really exciting when you're in that stage, you know, um, and you're not 100 percent sure if it's there. But you kind of think, well, maybe this, maybe this is right. Um, but a big part of it for me as well was maturity. I, I wish I'd matured younger. But I didn't. But you know what? That's an interesting point. Because there are people who mature in their 20s. Yeah. There are. Oh, absolutely. There are people who mature even earlier. Usually they've had some horrible shit happen to them. Yeah. I think it takes some of that. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes, like, you know, that's the trade-off. But there are some people who just uh, really have a sense of themselves and a sense of their creative selves. Yeah in a very solid way at a very young age. Yeah. And that's probably the exception rather than the rule, but it, it's a real possibility in life. But what is also a real possibility, uh, I think is that there are people who don't get it sorted out until they're in their seventies. Well, also for me, at least it was, it was a question of being able to sit those hours. By the way, I'm not suggesting that Carl's in his seventies. Really, it's, it's old man Geary sitting there at the desk. Yeah, I had to. I needed help to get. Do you in need the a door. diaper change? Are you good? I think we're getting there. Okay. Um, but it was. It was. It was a question of being able to sit the hours that were required. Right. Um, but not just to sit there, but to really, you know, you know. I, I think for me at least, writing comes from this kind of central image that you're trying to to bring into the light somehow in a, in, in, a, in a way that feels authentic. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be able to really get quiet and listen to that stuff. Um, yeah. And I wasn't interested in writing the way I'd written in the past. I, I, there was a quote actually I heard that I think is wonderful, um, and I'm not comparing it anyway, but when Joyce was... Um, 
talked about Dubliners after it was written. Um, he said he wanted the language to have a, a scrupulous meanness. And I thought that's brilliant. And what he means by that is that it's not exaggerated one way or another, that the language is paired back to just the right place where it's not hard in any way, but there's no fat. And I love that. There's something about that. So each word has its own gravity that makes sense. And also, there's a woman I love who influenced this book a great deal, I'd say, uh, Maeve Brennan. She wrote for The New Yorker for years, but she was a novelist as well. And uh, she worked with uh, William Maxwell, who I believe it was William Maxwell, yeah. who, uh, who was a really a legendary editor. He worked with Salinger and people like that. He was an extraordinary man. But she had this thing that when she would show him her work, that she could defend every word. And it was, I, I thought, yeah, that's where writing, it has to be that level. And that's what I mean when I talk about maturity, is that it's not that you're wasting your time, but you're taking the time required to do what's required. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, um, I want to get to Montpellier Parade and sort of um, the creative genesis of the book. But before we get there, I want to hear more about uh, your creative evolution because you went through, you've gone through different creative identities. You've tried different things, I have, yeah. which I should say a lot of writers that I've spoken with on this show um, you know, kind of a surprising number from my perspective have played in bands. Oh, right. You know, yeah. like a lot of people, yeah. like you've done some acting, yeah. you've written for the screen. Yeah. So let's talk about just your, your life in New York and how it led to these things. Um, and then I'm, I am going to have to also ask you the obligatory question about Madonna. If you, if you feel you must. I, I have to do it. I have, people have to know this, but, uh, just talk about it. Cause like, I think that, um, the individual path that people take creatively and a willingness to experiment, you know, try on different hats. Um, this desire to uh, play in different genres and in different creative spaces can be really instructive when it comes to finally sit down to write a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, I would imagine that all of these experiences inform the writing of Montpelier. Yeah, I think every experience does. And, and and you're right. I mean, look, creativity is its own monster and there's different forms of that. Um, I have a, a love affair with prose. I always have. Um, and I suppose part of, for, in terms of acting, and I did, I worked seriously as an actor for a number of years. Oh, was, how old were you when you started? First job I did, I was, uh, I think I was 21. Um, I did a movie with, uh, it was with Peter Fonda, which is kind of cool because as a kid, the only poster I had on my wall was Easy Rider. Why? There was something in that freedom. There yeah. was something about that film that was unlike anything else that I'd seen. Did you have psychedelic experiences as a kid? that were powerful or anything like that? You mean in terms of drugs? Yeah. Um, when you say a kid. Well, like I teenager, heard, oh, early teenager. 20s. Oh, sure. I had an appetite for that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did all of that was stuff. It, did you find it like super powerful and instructive or was it one of those things that just kind of happened on the side? Because I think for some people, it's a real, it's a, it's a real central experience, especially for creative people. Uh, no. I nearly fell off a roof a couple of times, and, and it was a disaster. <laughs> it really nothing nothing opened except my head. <laughs> uh, I like that answer. Okay, um, so no, I wish. Um, yeah. 
But uh, and I, I was very lucky, you know. I, I I was around New York again at a time where independent film was kind of taken off. It was a really vibrant time. I worked with Michael Almereda a number of times. With whom? Michael Almereda, who uh, you know, he was one of the East Village filmmakers who was still going today, and he's wonderful. But there was there was a lot of those guys like Jim Jarmusch and and people like that who were just around, and their films are starting to emerge. The Angelica uh, Cinema had just opened in the, uh, West Houston, and you know, there's a real kind of resurgence in filmmaking. And what was unusual at that time, which doesn't exist today again, uh, is you didn't have to be a star. And you could be a little different. Or you could be from Ireland and be in that film because there was an understanding that New York was a melting pot and people from Ireland lived there. You, didn't, right. you know, it wasn't like a thing. Right. Um, and you didn't have to be a bartender or a priest. Right. So it was kind of, <laughs> you know, it was it was it was great. And uh Though you did work as a bartender, correct? I've owned bars. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you've never been a priest. I've ne- well, I've tried. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I offered to marry these two people once, be their, their minister. They turned me down, but I, it was you know, an apprenticeship. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, so it was a good time to, to be around that neighborhood. Did you take acting classes? Uh, after I'd done my first film, I did. I thought, oh, this is what I'll do. This will be great. And, of course, I didn't work for three years because yeah. um, that's not the way the world works, or that is how the world works, rather. Um, and I did. And now I went and I studied. I studied in a very serious way uh, in New York for a number of years. Like, what did you do? Like, the, uh, the like Stella Adler kind uh, of stuff? Or? Not Stella Adler, no. Um, it was more the... the um, kind of uh, method acting there was a couple of really renowned teachers out there at that time that i managed to to work with um and it was intense it was great it was a whole other development because it's like this uh, physical manifestation of these these things that kind of rattle around inside you anyway uh and scripts were great and there was some really kind of good stuff out there it was it was really fun and i liked i liked the process like i'd loved cinema growing up it was important to me so to be around a set made a lot of sense to me but i in saying that and i i've said this before in interviews i always felt the problem i had as an actor was that i i am such a natural observer that i was always a few beats behind where i needed to be and when i would watch somebody who would really, really could act. Do you know, and I'm very lucky. I did scenes with Bill Murray and Helen Mirren and Sam Shepard and really remarkable people. Or people like these I find remarkable. Yeah. And when you're in a room with someone like that, and it's not because they're, I mean, obviously they are famous people and we've grown up with these images of them. But there's something else going on. There's this, this sharpness moment to moment that they have that I thought, I don't have that. That's not that's not how I am in the world. And it was great to know it, but it was it was fabulous to be able to watch these people do their thing. It was fascinating. Bill Murray grew up in a big family. Yeah. Lots of yeah. stuff. I wonder where he was in the uh, order of birth. He, yeah, that's a good question. I maybe don't know. he was the eldest. <laughs> what a big brother. He's not looking up he's not looking up at anybody. Yeah. He's constantly he's just like, you know, he's at like the tip of the spear. When I, I he was in Hamlet I was in Hamlet and he he played Polonius. And uh on the first day of rehearsals, he showed up late and he tried to quietly drag a folding chair into the circle of actors who were reading the play. And it was like this kind of gorilla trying to be gentle across the forest floor. It was, it was very funny. But afterwards, 
uh, I'd said hello to him. We were having a chat and I was leaving and I said, well, look, it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I guess I'll see you on set. And he looked at me in that kind of flat-eyed, fish-eyed way that he has. And he said, well, maybe one of us might get fired. <laughs> and I walked away. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Yeah. Right off the bat. Right, he had right. you. Oh, I was like, yeah, you, you don't mean you, do you? <laughs> and Sam Shepard, uh, he just passed away. He was, a, yeah. he was a force. He was a force of nature. He was really a remarkable man. And he did a thing. He played the ghost, uh, Hamlet's father, Hamlet. Um, and he doesn't fly. And so what he would do, he was, had his ranch out in the Midwest. But he was afraid of flying? He, I don't know if it was a fear, but he didn't fly. Um, I mean, I think if he had to eat it, but he didn't like it. Okay. But what he did is, you know, the ghost is one kind of monologue in Hamlet. He stuck the, the monologue on the window of his car that he drove from out west to New York City. That's safe. And just, yeah, I know, yeah, it's pretexting. <laughs> and that's, that's how he learned this. He just, all the way across, he just kept going back and forth and back and forth. I yeah. thought, what a brilliant man. Yeah, I was like, when I was, when he passed away, I was reading, you know, all the different uh, eulogies online and everything. Yeah. And uh, like reading about this farm that he lived on, looking at pictures of this farm that he lived on in Kentucky. Kind of remarkable of, like, Sometimes you, you come across people like that and you're like, well, he really seemed to have figured out yeah. his life or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually one of the few people you can just look at and go effortlessly cool. Yeah. But, you know, in, an, in the most authentic way and you just go, I don't know how that guy, he just said a little force of nature. Like, because that's the thing. I think that, you know, when it comes to the arts, especially and when it comes to fame in the arts, yeah. there can be, uh, you know, I think there's like a premium placed on um, cool. Yeah on depth of soul. Mm -hmm. But what I find sometimes, and I think what one of the challenges is, is that there's the difference between the performance of cool and the performance of yeah. depth of soul yeah. and, auth and authenticity. Yeah. And like, he strikes me as like a, a very authentic person. Patty Smith strikes me as a very authentic. Clean. There were, there were two peas in a pod. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. and I mean, I read uh, just kids. Uh, I never lived in New York, which mm. is one of the regrets I have, especially as a young person. It's yeah. like, you know, it would have been, it would have been a good thing to have gone through, but um, you know, and I wasn't alive at the time that she was there yeah, sure. doing this stuff. And she and Sam were sort of uh, meeting and yeah. in cahoots, but man, it made me nostalgic for a time that I never lived in to yeah. read that book yeah. and to be alive in New York when it was like that. She really made it seem she was What she did in that book is remarkable. Yeah. Really remarkable. You must have loved it. Yeah. There was a, there's a great quote. Uh, George O'Keefe talked about it, um, about New York and it was, I'm going to paraphrase unfortunately, but it was something to the effect of, you can't paint New York. You can just know it. And I think that's brilliant. And what she managed, I think Patty Smith really found a way to talk about a place and time in, cause you know, when you get into, you know, doesn't, there's, there's, it's not, it's a very difficult thing to try and capture a spirit of, of a time. Um, and you have to talk about it from the, from a different side almost and it happens around the piece but it's never what the piece is about yeah. but she managed to actually go right into the center of it and work out that way it's, she's she really pulled something off with that well and i'm also amazed too like or not amazed but i i made note of the fact when i was reading that book that um it seems like in artistic movements or in periods of time and in specific places where the arts really flower and there's really a scene or whatever you want to call it hmm. 
that you will have people who um, are very gifted, who kind of live um, on the edge, who are uh, consuming a lot, not taking great care of themselves. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, those yeah. those people. <laughs> yeah. But um, more often than I think people realize, there are people like Patty Smith, who was right at the heart of it and was right in the middle of all that. But, you know, I think when you're looking at her from the outside, not knowing very much, you would assume since she was right there in the mix that she would have led this crazy life. But she was actually, she had it together. She was not living, um, uh, like she wasn't living fast. She was kind of slow and contemplative mm-hmm. and taking better care of herself than the people around her than the people around yeah. her. And you kind of need people like that. It's not a surprise, I guess, uh, what I'm driving at is a, it's not a surprise that she would be the one who would write the book. Well, she's one of the few survivors as well. Yeah. Because also, if you think about that crew in particular, because that, that was late 70s, early 80s, AIDS took out right. so many of the brightest. Yeah. Because... Let's be honest, the brightest ones, they were getting laid the most. Right. <laughs> and that was the, the shocking thing. And so what happened, and I think it's part of why we have the New York we have now, is that the the B and C list were what was left. Mm. And they took over the reins. Yeah. And now we have that in New York. Yeah, the AIDS crisis, uh, there was a documentary. What was it called? It was like How to Defeat a Plague. Mm. I've talked about this before. I, I, I have a terrible memory, but I, it was an excellent <laughs> excellent documentary yeah that i was i was a young kid then so i wasn't really uh, i didn't my, you know i wasn't aware yeah um of what was going on at the time sure but you watch that and um you get a sense of like how many lives were lost and how much resistance they faced in just trying to get basic help oh absolutely and yeah. awareness i yeah. mean i don't know just yeah. like a kind of a maddening catastrophe but also uh, inspiring the courage that um, the people at the forefront of that entire thing. They were incredible. They were incredible. Yeah, they, they really, really were. They, they really yeah. had to build their defenses from the ground up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, just to go back to when, you, when you're talking about a scene. And New York obviously has had so many different scenes over the years. Um, I ran a place in New York for about nearly t- seven or eight years called Sinead. And it was a little music cafe. It was actually just a tiny little hole in the wall in the East Village. And it was but music. of renown. Well, l- later on, and, and I think this, this is what I was going to say about that. So we had some remarkable people. It, was, it became a real hub of activity. Like who? Uh, well, Jeff Buckley's probably the most famous because he'd done, he used to play every Tuesday night to empty rooms. But when he did finally get signed, he was most comfortable to do his first album out of there. So it was live at Chennai. But, you know, we had days there where... Marion Faithful would do it uh, totally randomly, a duet with Sinead O'Connor. And if you weren't in the room, you missed it. And it was incredible. And it was incredible, not because we sat around all the time going, hey, this is a scene. It was because <laughs> we, were, we were curious and there was this energy in the place that had its own momentum. But you can't create that. And you don't even sometimes know exactly what you're dealing with until after the fact. It's after the fact. And you're like, wow, that really was a thing. Because you realize how sterile things can be. You get whole decades going by and you're like, wow, really nothing happened. That was but that, that was unique. That was, a, that was a decade. And it was. It was incredible. Um, what was it like being in, I'm assuming you were in the bar on a quiet Tuesday night 
and a guy of the, uh, the, you know, the, the talent of Jeff Buckley is playing. Like, did you see it? Did you notice like, Oh my God. Well, he guy. played, you know, it was funny because there was an awful lot of, um, Hal Wilner had brought, um, Hal Wilner's a, a renowned, uh, producer. Um, he brought Jeff by and he knew his father and he brought him by and Jeff's was trying to figure out his thing. And in terms of, again, like artistic pursuit and creativity and apprenticeship, he knew he wasn't there yet. Now, he could have signed a deal any day. Amaga Records at the time really wanted him. Yeah, so did Sony. And he kind of turned his back on all of that stuff and said, no, nah, I'm going to figure out, I want to write songs because that's what he wanted. He hadn't figured out how to do that yet. He hadn't found his voice. And he played Sinead. It was like, you know, Tuesday night, nine o'clock. Some days there were a lot of people, but most of them, there was nobody. It was four guys and two of them were like, you know, meeting some girl and they were like, uh, this guy would shut up so he can hear what, you know. <laughs> and it was, you know, and even even for myself, it's like, yeah, it's Tuesday, it's just Jeff. You know, because it didn't, he, did, he didn't care about that. He was, he knew why he was there. He was figuring out what he was creatively. And again, you know, and I, I keep harping on about this at the moment, but I really think if you don't let people have their apprenticeship, you're going to, it's really, we as a, as a, as a people lose out, do you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and unless there's more environments, and I think there's a responsibility both to people who are further along and to maybe the state to kind of go, this is important. Like to a, to a culture and to a society. What to, else, you know, what are we otherwise? Yeah, yeah. What matters? Yeah. Like what, what really matters? Well, I was, no, what was it? Uh, God, I'm going to, I always, I have these like anecdotes and I want to paraphrase them and I, I forget the details, but it was something Winston Churchill said about the arts and why they were fighting World War II. Someone said something to him, but he's like, this is why we're fighting basically yeah. is what he said. Because what else are we? Because what else are we? If we yeah. don't have uh, What are we arts, fighting for? Yeah. That was that was the the gist of the anecdote, yeah. and I'll you know at some point figure out the exact details. But it you know, the point is that in a uh, world that's worth living in, yeah, not to make not to make it sound too precious, but it, well, it it does. It, you see, this is the problem: is it becomes pat. You're like, oh, I'm just being sentimental. Yeah, I'm being I'm being wishy washy. Yeah, and you're like, well, hang on a second. Well, what does matter? What do you care about? Do you know? Because if it's not this stuff. We're all just sitting on the same freeway, stuck in traffic in some ways. Like, is it, you know, what, 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 what is important? Chasing money? Yeah. I mean, and I'm not knocking that stuff. And even when I'm giving the, the Wall Street dudes a hard time, sure. You know, I, I, I understand not everyone is set out to do the stuff that we do. And I'm not saying that what I do is that important. But actually, there is a value in being able to witness yourself as a human. And the only way that we've figured out to do that is by being creative in whatever way that is. Right. You know? Right. Um, and so if it's, if it's not sponsored, it, it's not a guarantee that we get to do that. Do you know? And so if we're all hemmed in too tight to a structured life, we, we lose that stuff. Do you know? And it's a big loss. It really is. Do you know, because what we're left with then are these r romantic and sentimental stories about New York in the 80s, you know, Paris in the 30s. Oh, they was regret. Why not now? You know, Los Angeles in the teens. Nobody ever said. <laughs> <laughs> I have this dream that if I ever if I, like if my ship ever comes in, I make a ton of money. I would love to I have I can even visualize it. 
there's like mountains, there's a lake, and then there's like, you know, cabins all around it. And it's like some sort of artist colony. I don't know. Like but I've had, that, actually, I've had that dream in but my it's, head. But it's interesting you say that, though, because I'll tell you the other side of that is, you know, artists shouldn't be separated from life either. Like, I have a friend of mine, there's this wonderful uh, sculptress, in, sculptress even, I think, sculptor, <laughs> um, in, in Dublin, uh, Grace Weir, and she has this expression that I love, and she goes, hang on a second, artists need to buy, buy their bread and their milk like everybody else. You can't pluck them as a separate thing. You got to have them, you know, they, <laughs> they walk around and look the same as the rest of us, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and that's important too. You know, the idea of plucking them and putting them, you know, I've never worked in a cabin. I've tried. It's so painfully difficult. The pressure is overwhelming. Because you're like, I got everything I, I got need. A, everything is, <laughs> and it's like you don't though, because you don't have life. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's easy to go and meditate and be a monk in a, you know, in a monastery. Right. You know, do it on the one, you know, I was trying to come up with a name of a freeway. The, 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 the 405. There you go. It's a lot harder. I mean, lay life or yeah. living in a, uh, in the quote unquote real world. Man, it's a much bigger challenge. It's a bigger challenge. So, I mean, I could see like as a summer thing or, you know, if you, you know, because they do have these. Uh, oh, I'm not knocking that artist, at all. I mean, sure. Retreats. I mean, I'm all for, for being able to go and retreat and do your thing. But as a permanent you know, situation. No, you need to live in the world. Yeah. You know, because that's what we, our work is about. Right. So, uh, Madonna, in the middle of all this, like you're living in New York. Yeah. You're acting in independent films. And then you wind up, what, getting a gig, uh, posing with Madonna for her sex book? Is that what happened? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and you know, it's funny because it's not, not that it haunts me. I mean, it does in some ways. You're going back 22 years, something like that. Yeah. And I, I, I do get asked about this a lot. And, it, you know, the whole the whole thing from start to end was, a, I don't know, maybe an hour of my life. And it, it, it <laughs> isn't really... It funny, isn't it, it funny how an hour it's of just, your you're life... You're like, can... wow, that hour. <laughs> you know, there's other people have said this and done far, far, you know, more significant things. Um, but it was as simple as, you know, I, I suppose, and I was embarrassed of it at the time, but I, I'm older now, so I'm not... Um, I, I had looked a certain way. I was, I was kind of a, an androgynous-looking kid. And, uh, you know, I guess that was part... I mean, actually, you know, it's funny. It's really easy to knock Madonna and kind of, you know, be... You know, she, she's, in, she's, a, she's low-hanging fruit in some ways. But I think she was actually trying to do something authentic. I don't know how successful she was at that. But you're you were really kind of dealing with what would be third-wave feminist movement and this kind of exploration of sex in all its many facets and that's a that's a that's a fine pursuit um and so uh, from that respect i i kind of think it was kind of a cool thing um but the reality is it was a very you know corporate packaging of a of a of a selling of sex so what was what was the actual experience of that hour like you're with her well it was you know here's the other thing i was i was working in a place like i was running this place downtown I was watching people who I just loved, you know, Marion Fatal, Sinead O'Connor. I was looking at the cream of talent every night of my life. Madonna wasn't on my radar. And the best, the best way I can describe that is I had to leave the East Village to go uptown to do the shoot. Once you went past 14th Street anyway, you were in this corporate land. You'd left your hub. Even you then? Know? Even then. 
And that's fine because New York is like that. But, you know, we all had our little spots. And so, you know, it became a very corporate thing. So the whole thing was entirely sterile. And the photograph's very mild. It's very thin. It's, you know, a, and it wasn't, it just didn't impact me. Did you interact with her? Oh, sure. No, look, a terrific girl. And a really interesting Oh, she woman. was nice. Okay, because I've heard different things. Oh, no, things. not at all. I found her, at least my experience, was incredibly pleasant, super professional, and uh, really bright. Like a bright woman yeah. and powerful in, yeah. in, in the best way um, and, and was very much uh, at the helm of her organization. But it's an organization. Right. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not knocking that, but it was different than what I was experiencing daily downtown, you know, which was much more kind of fluid. Yeah. Um, but no, so the, 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 the experience really didn't impact me one way or another. The only thing that came out of that entire thing for me was I have this, this story about how my mother found out about it, which I love, <laughs> which is that I, I guess there wasn't a lot of other Irish kids in the book. And uh, the Irish Times, which is a national newspaper, it's like the New York, you know, it's a national new, newspaper in the country for some reason thought it merited the front page <laughs> and they popped that photograph right on the front page of the Irish Times sealing your fate yeah <laughs> that you would be asked about because I never thought to mention it I don't think I mentioned it to four people it was like a thing but crazy things happened in the East Village at that time all the time right and so it wasn't a big deal to me um, so I really never th really talked about it how, how did you even get the gig oh I was uh, I, I was approached a lot because I guess a lot of people came through Chennai and I was approached quite a lot to do photographs for because the, I had this look you know I was a good looking kid yeah um, and uh, I mean if you go for that kind of thing I'm not, you know it's not for everybody <laughs> but uh, so it, it wasn't unusual and this seemed interesting because I was interested in music and she was a musician you know it just seemed interesting and I was kind of I thought well you know it might be interesting um, so the gig kind of came in through uh, it was Stephen Moisel was the photographer and uh, he you know he'd asked me to do photographs previous and I kind of I really wasn't that interested it just wasn't my landscape you know sure. it just didn't interest me Um but <laughs> there was a, a grocer who lived about 100 yards from my mother, you know, this old-fashioned grocer who must have been 700 years old. He was always there. He's probably still there. He's <laughs> always old. He was born old and very conservative and probably Catholic and all that stuff. And he had a little black bicycle and uh, he sells the Irish Times. So we saw this and my family weren't reading the Irish Times. And so he rolled up the newspaper and pedaled his little black bike and knocked on my mother's door. And she opened the door and he handed her the newspaper like it was some filthy rag. <laughs> and he said, you might want to see that more. <laughs> and off he went. And she opened his... <laughs> and called and she said, what are you doing? It's <laughs> horrifying. Distraught. I love that. So that was the best and most interesting thing is just this image I have of, of my local grocer delivering that paper. <laughs> I love that. I really like that. So let's do, uh, I want to talk about Montpellier Parade and like uh, how you got from, you know, all the stuff that we have just discussed in the East Village and the different iterations your creative life has taken on over the years. Um, I know you, you wrote for the screen, you acted. Uh, at what point did you start to, and then you also started books that didn't come to fruition. Yeah. But yeah, at what did. point did this, did this book, um, 
occur to you? Where did the, you know, where was the point of creative Genesis? And then what was the point at which you realized, like, I think I've actually got it. You know, it's funny. I, I had it and I didn't know I had it in, in some ways. I, I was in Glasgow before I was living there. My wife's family are from there. And there's a museum there um, that's fairly unremarkable. And it's like the least endowed museum in the world, probably. There's a few scatterings. There's about four or five decent paintings. But down the back, uh, I came across, there was a Rembrandt. And it was like in a, it was, I was practically in the, in the broom closet. And I came across this Rembrandt that was called The Carcass of an Ox. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful it's Rembrandt, it's beautiful, but it, it depicts almost a, a crucified carcass that is hung out in an abattoir and there's a small figure of a boy behind it, just peeping around the corner. And the colours, it's almost like Dante's Inferno, it's extraordinary. And it really affected me. And now I've been affected by, by, by paintings in the past, but there was something that stayed with me with this. And... It was the question of, you know, it's very much a painting about class. Who cuts the meat? Who eats the meat? Who is the meat? Um, because meat is a commodity, you know, in this way. And then you kind of realise that the carcass in this case is the people who cut, you know, that we're all kind of part of that. And my, my book is very much about class. Um, but that painting gave me Sonny, it gave me his desire to, he wants to paint. It gave me his job, he works in a butcher shop. And it's funny that you get these things and you don't even realise you had them. But the, again, and back to that idea, is that I realised that the, my job at least is to, when you have these images that you're trying to draw out into the light and you kind of have to chip away a certain amount, to discover them and that's what writing this book was all about for me was really trying to find these images and bring them into into the light in some way so when did you see this painting when like what was that that was about six months before i started writing um and i you know i, I, I wrote all the time anyway i, I have a good work ethic um, what t- like what time do you? How do you, you say I'm, earlier? Uh, you get up in the morning. Yeah, I'm a morning person. I like it. I even even when I was young, I, I was always morning. I'd sleep in the afternoon. Afternoons never made sense to me. I just <laughs> thought this kind of chunk of time in the center that was you know. So that seems like an appropriate time to sleep. Um, but I, I would get up and I would work. And so this story kind of presented itself, and it presented itself very close to fully formed. You know, um, there was an enormous edit I did that I took out about 100 pages because I realized that, but that was more about trying to refine the language. Um, but the story itself... The, the scrupulous meanness? Yeah, yeah. Um, because there are times where I felt I had exaggerated. You know, I had I had moved the, the dial too far left or right. Um, but the story itself kind of showed up fully, fully formed. Um because what I was missing, the point, the part, the, the, the story, just if I give you a very brief uh, synopsis, it's basically the story between Sonny Knowles, who's a, a working class kid, who is at a place in, in his life where he's just stepping out into manhood and he's starting to realise the way society operates and that what he wants or dreams of in the world maybe society has a different idea about. And he comes across a woman, uh, Vera, 
Hatton, who is really other. And she's other in terms of age, class, knowledge uh, and what's available to her. And I was interested in putting these two people together to kind of see what would happen. Do you know? Um, And, you know, it's funny, too, because, again, it's a lot of what we've been talking about today. You know, I wanted to be very careful. I wasn't interested in sort of... And we've had a certain amount of this in Irish fiction over the last while, this kind of poverty porn. Right. It doesn't do it for me. I, I think there's been some really great kind of kitchen sink dramas, 60s, 70s, 80s, that have been very successful, but they've been done. And so I wanted to go to the next stage of that and kind of go, well, hang on a second. Is, is, is what I'm interested in what's on the kitchen table, in the pantry, or is it what's not on the wall, what's not on the bookshelves, what's missing? And this, this vitality that we get from having access to art. And that's what's missing from Sonny's life. And that's what Vera gives him. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, considering like the totality of our conversation and knowing a little bit now about uh, where you're from and, uh, you know, what you've been through in your life, the places that you lived, that you have written a novel that deals with class um, makes perfect sense. Because what an education coming from, uh, you know, an era in Dublin where opportunities were scarce, where there was a lot of flight where there was a lot of, like you said, people with advanced degrees flipping burgers, and then to go live in lower Manhattan and to get to be present for its de-evolution, (laughs) you know, from a place where artists could live and thrive and where there were these pockets that uh, were able to support creative people, were able to give them the time that they need to have their apprenticeships Mm -hmm. and to have the space um, to make art and to figure themselves out, but to see that contracting. Yeah. That's a lesson in class as well. Well, it is. Absolute gentrification is a type of, is a class issue. Yeah. It and I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's touching us all, but those were two um, really concentrated experiences of mm-hmm. it, I would I suppose. So it's a preoccupation. Is it something that you feel like you were able to um, exercise? Like, is it something you think you're probably going to revisit in future works? Is it something like having finished this book, is there some lesson that you learned that you didn't previously um, have your your mind wrapped around. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I. You know, it's funny because I, I again I, I should really clarify that you know class is everywhere throughout the book. It's not what the book is about. Mm. Ultimately, you know, really, it's. I was interested in. These two people, you know, it's 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 the room that shows us the universe. It's it's not the other way around. Right. Um, and so there's nothing worse than a polemic that starts with, hey, did you know <laughs> you should, you know. Yeah. And so I wasn't interested in anything like that. And actually, what was important to me is 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 to find the most ordinary circumstances I could stuff that I at least can readily relate to and finding a way to actually elevate it in some regard where there's this sense of something that's beautiful within that. Because again, this is not stuff that we can, we can, you know, in, in the East Village, for example, we didn't have money. It wasn't about money. Um, we were able to exist and, and work and be creative outside of that. Right. Um, 
so again, the, you know, the book isn't 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 really just geared around class. It's it really, it's a, you know, at its core, it's I hope there's something about love in there as well. Yeah. Um, and what 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 that means outside of what we think about in terms of moral, you know, aesthetic. Well, and, um, you know, I guess sometimes I feel like, uh, in my own experience at least, a piece of writing in terms of its themes and in terms of what it's really deeply about doesn't necessarily make itself clear even to the author. Correct. Until the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's exactly what I was saying. So, you know, afterwards you can come in and kind of go, oh, that's that's what's emerging, this theme. And we, we, we do that academic shaping. But that's that's at its core, not... I think at least, you know, I'm pretty sure Shakespeare didn't set out with a theme. Yeah. It's not enough to drive us over the finish line because it's too difficult. So it has to come from this, some core, you know, kinetic energy that needs to push this thing forward. Well, but it's also, like you say, you know, um, the universe, you learn about the universe from the room or whatever. I forget exactly what you said. It's, yeah, flipping it, you know, the, the, the room will show us. There's a poet, actually, um, there's a wonderful Irish poet called Patrick Havna, who grew up in Monaghan. Monaghan is, if there was, if, if you're looking at a human anatomy, Monaghan is probably the armpit. Um, and and he, it, nothing happens there. There's nothing. But there was a route he used to take to school. And he wrote a poem about it called The, the uh, Stony Grey Fields of Monaghan. And it talks about this idea of the kind of the way at a certain time in our lives we have this intimacy with a landscape. And there's a choice you make whether you want to leave that place and go and know the world, but you'll never know it with that intimacy. And so it's an either or. You yeah. can know one place with great intimacy and it'll reveal the world to you or you can try and know the world. But it's very difficult to do both. Yeah, well, you know, and it's like I have this wanderlust. Um, I don't get to indulge it as much as I would like, especially with young kids. And you can't like just pack up and go. And, sure. and you know what? Even before kids, like it takes money to pack up and go. You got to have a certain kind of lifestyle. But um, I love to travel. Yeah. But yet, um, and and I will sometimes uh, to this day entertain the idea of like maybe if we packed up and lived in X, things would be more interesting or yeah. easier or better. You know, it's a very yeah. it's a very tempting train of thought. Uh, but then I'm also plagued by, um, you know, you've seen it written plenty of places or said by many wise people that like, you know, change of location isn't ultimately going to fix anything. It's about what's between your ears. And And the problem is with these places, when you show up there, you show up there, you know, you bring everything with you anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so yeah. So I guess like, uh, there's a part of it. It's like, maybe the, the right thing to do is just stay put. Yeah. Yeah. Make yeah. the best of it where you are. It's interesting. I have this this image in the book that I use a lot. Is every time Sonny works with his father, he's building walls. It's always walls. There's this sort of fortification going on. And I was. It was something I was interested in, in that, you know, in some ways, he and we all want to be our father's son. We want to belong. We want to be part of a community. However, Sonny's also looked over the wall and he's seen that there is a world out there. And there's a desperate need in them to leap over that wall and, and, and go and have that experience. But you can't have both. And it harks back to that original um, that mythology of the hero's journey. And it's funny because when that story is told, I always feel like it's clipped. It's always cut off. The story is basically that the hero goes into the underworld to find the wisdom, slay the wood dragon or whatever it is, and then 
is free. But the story doesn't stop there. Once he gets that wisdom, he's to go back to the tribe and he has to go, hey, I got this thing in the underworld. I got the wisdom. I got the wisdom. <laughs> and the first thing the tribe do is they look at each other and go, who the hell does this guy think he is? And they kill him. But the real challenge of the hero's journey is bringing the knowledge back to the tribe because they don't want it. Right. You know, and so that's, you know, whereas we, we love the story to end with him just getting the thing and happy ever after. But it's not. The, the challenge actually starts after the fact. And again, I think it's something Sonny is aware of. I have a scene when he brings a T.S. Eliot book home and he presents it at the kitchen table and his mother picks it up and she's furious. What do you want me to do with this? And the mother has this awful task of protecting her own children from what they, want, they might want in the world. And she says to him, you know, come winter, it's lumps of coal. Do you know that this stuff, this, this device you have in your hand is dangerous because it's going to challenge who we are. And we're not in a position to take up that challenge because the alternative is horrendous. Hmm. And so did you, when you were writing this, have a specific audience in mind? A lot of times writers will be writing to a person or to a small collection of friends or like, did you have somebody in mind no, that you were trying to communicate to? No, but I probably should start doing that. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> well, maybe um, for the next one. Next one, who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't know how. Honestly, I, I, I couldn't. It... it because, you know, you present different... I, if I presented different characters from my life who this book is like, you know, you're kind of like, oh, they would hate this kind of thing. And literally like, oh, you know, I, I just, I think it would be appalling. I just think it would... would slow you down? I think it would really destroy the whole process for me. Yeah. What about uh, next book? Are you working on anything? I am, yeah. No, I've been working fairly vigorously. Um, and it's been great. It's been great. Uh but it's it's funny too, you know. You, you, this took me four years, uh, which is a long time, I'm told. But letting go of it is very difficult because the other thing about this book, it's written in second person, and which is not easy to do. It's really a terrible. I don't recommend <laughs> it. It's, you know, it's funny. Even when I read second person novels, I kind of go, ay, ay, ay. Um, I've seen it done very well in the short story, but it's very difficult to, to sustain. sustain right? Yeah. And what I realized was that I'd, I'd written, it wasn't so much that it was a pure second person. What I wanted was it was a protagonist who hadn't quite come to terms with its own narrative. And so the, the you um, becomes almost an accusation. Yeah. But the finger's pointed inward. It's not out at the world. It's like and a first second person. It, well, it is in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And so, but the voice really clung to me, which is great until you go to write something else. So I had to kind of spend some time shedding that. And the other thing is I really fell in love with Vera in some ways and Sonny, and I missed them. And yeah. there's a third character we haven't mentioned called Sharon, who's Sonny's friend. And, uh, yeah, I, I really miss well, four them. years is a long time to spend with people. Yeah, it is. It is. And you do, you do surrender, um, not owner. I mean, I guess ownership. Well, it's not mine. It goes in and has it its own out. life. And yeah. that's, that's as it should be, like, like any child. And that's what you, I mean, you're, you're writing to people. You want to communicate with the readership. Yeah. And, and also, you know, a novel doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, work is, is to be read. I mean, that relationship between a reader and an author meets in the center. It's just, just that, that thing we talked about where it doesn't live until it's a reader reinterpreting, you know, and that, that's what you want. Well, uh, I think you're getting it. 
Yes. Uh, it's great to meet you. And <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you coming over here like jet lagged, <laughs> like a, what, I don't even know, a 20 hour journey from Glasgow to Los Angeles, probably slept about three hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank God for coffee. Yeah, and good coffee here. Yeah, so it was it was great uh, to talk with you, and congratulations. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me in. Really appreciate it. All right, guys, there you go. That is Carl Geary. His novel is called Montpelier Parade. It is available in the United States from Catapult. Montpelier Parade. Carl Geary, you can find him online. He's on Facebook, and he is on Twitter. His handle on Twitter is at Geary Carl. Carl with a K. So, very nice talking with him. Thanks to Kill Rockstars uh, for, the, for the music, as usual. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's the best way to listen. Get it for your uh, iPhone. Get it for your Android device. The Other People with Brad Listy app, wherever you get your apps. If you would like to write to me, let me know what you think. Share a story. Whatever the case may be, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to uh, drop a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So, uh, yeah, it was just, it's good to talk with somebody who's not American. I mean, I know he's actually, uh, I want to say he's a naturalized citizen. He's lived here, you know, he lived in the United States for a long time. So he knows the States in a way uh, that most people from other countries do not. But it's good for the show. I think it's good, hopefully, for you guys to hear from a voice uh, from abroad and also to talk to somebody who's had such a varied creative life that's always fascinating to me when people have worn different hats and done so with some success tried different things on cross-pollinated and then fed that into their fiction I guess in some uh, capacity so it is uh, it's a Saturday as I record this been up since dawn done a lot of talking into a microphone today it's an odd thing to be doing <laughs> on a Saturday it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon almost on the nose I've been sitting here talking into a microphone more or less since 9am that's the truth just try to give you guys a broad overview of what I'm uh, up to over here so I've got some great shows in the pipeline I'm very excited to share with you. I've had some good conversations lately. Keep your ears uh, tuned. Keep your eyes tuned. Keep, you know what I'm saying. Stay tuned to see what happens uh, in the weeks to come as I roll out more episodes of the Other People podcast and share with you more conversations with people who write books. It's making me want to write a book, talking to all these people. I can tell you that much. I've been thinking about it. Got to figure out when. I got to wedge that in. Got to find some time. Got to... Uh, Find some like energy, some uh, like mother load of caffeine. Figure out a way, reprioritize. Here's the qu here's the quandary. You want to know what the quandary is? The quandary is, I feel like in order to do the work, uh, you know, the creative work, I would have to sacrifice to some degree, uh, to some degree at least, my uh, physical well-being. You know, by getting less sleep or by exercising less, I would have to sacrifice my physical health which I think maybe some people would do easily. They'd say, fuck it, I want to write. I don't care about my physical health. I don't care about my sleep. I don't care about getting exercise. But I'm a person who wants to be well, which I think might be holding me up. Am I using that as an excuse? Is that the problem? Am I trying to use my physical health as an excuse why I'm not getting enough writing done? Do I have my priorities out of whack? I don't know what the problem is here. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs>